This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of August 7, 2017, and this is Michael Howey welcoming you to episode 440 of Defender Radio. The scene looks like one painted with the words of Tolkien himself. There are moss-covered rocks, a babbling brook, low shrubs surrounding monstrous trees that fill the landscape. The photo I'm describing is this week's episode art and was taken by the guest you'll be hearing from. It's truly beautiful and exactly what I imagined when we started talking about the Acadian forests of Nova Scotia. Also, it's gone. It was clear-cut not too long ago. Full of biodiversity, hundreds of years old, and filling an ecological role that's difficult to fully comprehend, the Acadian forests of Atlantic Canada are under attack. Clear-cutting, ineffective replanting, backroom politics, and disinformation are creating a hazardous situation that, according to our guest Cliff Solentine, is hitting the crisis point. A member of Stop Spraying and Clear Cutting Nova Scotia, Cliff says there is less than 1% of the original Acadian forest left, and it's being clear cut 20 times faster than it can rejuvenate itself. Cliff joined Defender Radio to discuss the unique ecosystems found in the Acadian forests, what's driving the clear cutting, and what ecological and economic solutions exist to replace this dangerous industry. We're going to be talking about uh, Acadian forests and clear cutting. It's a, a, a we've been talking a bit about this online, and it's a very broad issue. Uh, and I spoke with a friend of mine who has a degree in history and forestry, and he was telling me it's a very, very critical issue. Uh, this is not something that is sort of believed by a small group of people, but a lot of people recognize that this is almost getting to a crisis point, or it's in a crisis point. But well, I we're, thought we're well past the crisis point at this point. Yeah, and so I we thought this, to start, we should probably talk about what exactly the Acadian forests are. What are these trees? What is this ecosystem that we're dealing with here? Well, the ecosystem itself, um, like with many things in, in the scientific world, the definition is complex because the trees that form the ecosystem evolved millions of years ago. But the the trees, the forests, the, 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 the flora these all began to come together in the way that we think of as the Acadian forest ecosystem following the previous ice age. And uh, it is, you might think of it as a, a northerly temperate forest or a subboreal temperate forest. It's uh, in, in the Nova Scotia region in New Brunswick. Under normal circumstances, it should be predominated by hardwoods, primarily maples, birches, beaches, um, and uh, a number of lesser trees, a varieties of maples, um, and with odd scatterings of conifers throughout, and in certain regions, areas that are exposed to the north and areas of high ground, which should easily slip into into boreal ecosystems. But what has happened? Um, well, I, before I get into what happened, I'll just keep going with that. So this very complex ecosystem combines elements of both uh, southerly temperate forests and northerly boreal forests. And it's an amazing ecosystem that supports uh, thousands of species of wildlife, uh, thousands upon thousands of species of flora and fungi, uh, literally billions, 
and probably probably um, probably trillions of, uh, of various microscopic flora and fungi and animal life. Uh, we know so little about the microscopic world mm-hmm. throughout this ecosystem, but the mixing of it, the complexity of it, um, it supports an amazing array of life, and uh, which is the beauty of the Acadian ecosystem. Um, you, you get you get uh, like in the area where my home state is. I live in a, a region of Nova Scotia that's about as remote as you can possibly get. And uh, in this one area, we have wolverines, which are typically a northerly animal, and we also have um, their smaller uh, cousins from the weasel family, uh, martens and fishers. And it's very rare you live in places where you see both of those. We also have both lynx and uh, and bobcats. The bobcat is the southerly, um, the southerly version of the lynx, and the um, and the lynx is the northerly version, the the, the big-footed snow version. So we get this amazing mixing of wildlife here that forms this very complex ecosystem. And because it's um, the Acadian forest re- is, is unusual, too, unlike, say, the, uh, the forest out west, the, the rainforest and such you would see in the Pacific Northwest, where you get these massive stands of gigantic old-growth forests, mature Acadian forests will tend to be mixed by nature because you have different types of trees with different lifespans. Um, they will be susceptible to different illnesses and such. You'll get areas where you, a mature forest is actually a blended forest. It has young trees, old trees, trees at the latter stages of their life, established canopy, breaks in the canopy where you have little glades and glens. So there's a variety of food and, uh, and uh, biodiversity all within a very small area that just for such a northerly region, it supports a very wide range of wildlife. In fact, the only, in biological terms, bottleneck to the type of life that can grow here is the severity of winter and how well various species are able to get at food and adequate shelter during the winter. Yeah, it's remarkable to hear just that. That sort of, as you start listing species, um, to hear them, uh, I, and I, and you are right. I, I have heard many, many people talk about sort of how you will have one type of an animal, and we're talking at that sort of species level. Um, you will have, say, martens are very common, but you won't have then fisher or other types of weasel. So to, exactly. to sort of have all of them together, and then have both you know lynx and bobcats and all of that. Uh, and I know in Nova Scotia, your, your coyote population is rather fluid at times due to certain government policies. Um, but it's it's very interesting that it, it is so diverse. And it sounds like it, a lot of it stems from that diversity in the forest, the, the different types of trees, as you said. It's very close. In fact, it's, it's really quite dependent on the diversity of the forest. If the forest is made uniform, then you can only get a, a limited number of species that can live within it. So yeah, the, the diversity of the fauna or the flora um, is virtually equal to the diversity of the fauna. And the problem right now is that uh, it's being clear-cut, I guess. I mean, is there, there's no other real way to say that. Um, and typically, I mean, we, we as Canadians, I believe, view forestry as a sustainable industry uh, when done properly and recognize that it, you know, it is damaging, but we also have the ability to repair it. And in some cases, repair it very quickly. Uh, so what is separating what we perceive as, I, I will, for the, the lack of better terminology and my own uh, uh, lack of education on this subject, say sort of good forestry from this, this potentially devastating clear-cutting of what is a very clearly sensitive and diverse ecosystem? Um, there's a number of factors that have really altered 
the forest industry. It's, I mean, it's, it's never been good. And, and in the 18th and you know, 19th centuries, the very early part of the 20th century, um, mainly it wasn't that forestry couldn't be done better, just they had really had no comprehension of the reality that eventually the resources ran out. Now, I know the resources run out, but at the same time, we have developed various technologies that, um, that seem to, well, there's no scene. They, they just ignore the fact that eventually the forest does run out. It's a big part of the problem that we're facing here right now. But for example, you know, in the early 20th century and prior to that, logs were typically harvested by loggers and they used horses to drive them to a waterway and the, and the logs were run down waterways to a mill. And that way was much less devastating because there's much more to damaging forestry than just cutting the tree. You know, how you access the tree, how you get it out. Are you going to use a horse to drag it out? Well, that's going to make, you know, a little, a little dent on the ground and that heals. But if you're going in with an 80-ton skitter, that's going to make a rut three feet deep into the soil. You've not only killed that tree, but you've destroyed all the, all the fibrous roots and, and mycelial networking that runs between the trees that the trees rely on to share, um, to, to, to share nutrients as well as uh, means to, to protect one another and information. Like, you know, tree A 100 yards down the way shares with tree B um, that, uh, that it's being attacked by spruce beetles and it should release uh, enzymes uh, to, to uh, deter the spruce beetles. That, that all gets destroyed with modern forestry. We have the ability to do it much faster. People, when they think of uh, loggers these days, they tend to think of burly men going into the woods with chainsaws and axes, but that's nothing like what forestry's done today. The machines are like something out of a Terminator movie that are used to do forestry these days. These gigantic machines, um, there are several types. Uh, they were running some by my homestead just recently to clear some brush out from under the trees. As, as, as these were essentially... Um, like giant pulpers, and they were they were grinding up the trees. I actually ran out there and asked them if they could just clip the trees at the bottom because if they have to take them to clear them away from power lines, I'll just recycle those trees into lumber and firewood for us. Mm-hmm. To do that, that was fine. But I mean, they, they'll do that. They use these machines to just clip them from right underneath, or they have other machines that are just kind of like giant garden shears, and they will just they don't saw through the trees anymore. They they cut they can just clip a tree down with a three, four, five foot diameter trunk. They clip these down. These machines weigh many, many tons, and they can get at these trees very, very fast. But because the machines weigh many, many tons, they go through the trees very fast, and they make deep ruts, and uh, they're very damaging to the underlying soil. Um, that's, that's the direct technological part of the problem, the way that they're harvested. The indirect problems is that uh, very often things like waterways are simply ignored. Uh, I've, I've personally documented and have on video many times when the loggers are supposed to leave leeways or buffer areas around water courses and such, and I've documented areas where they have cut right to the edge of brooks and streams and cut right over springs and such, cut right over ponds. Um, I documented one of those less than a month ago. They, so they're, they're running these, these machines over those. They are cutting deeper and deeper. But the single most damaging thing, even beyond all of that, as, as bad as that is, is that what really drives the timber industry right now in Canada is not timber, it's pulp. They want to make pulp. And the best wood for pulp are conifer trees. So those rare regions in Canada where we actually have, it, where we actually have um, zones that can support hardwoods, those are systematically being, well, the hardwoods are systematically being removed. They either clear-cut the woods entirely, and then they replant softwoods, or they clear-cut the woods entirely, 
And then when the woods begin to grow back naturally, they go and spray over it a year or two later with glyphosate, to, which if you spray glyphosate at the right time of the year, the, the, young, the young conifers will not absorb it, but the, but the hardwoods will due to their broad leaf structure, and it kills the hardwoods. It also kills all the understory um, natural forest foliage that's trying to regrow in the area. And that creates an area of acidic soil where sphagnum moss is going to predominate and, and conifers like that and the conifers grow. So it makes, it makes of what was once a complex natural forest ecosystem into a very biologically flat ecosystem that can support only a very limited range of life and not much life at that. Well, and this, I mean, as you say this, it, it sort of sounds, you know, I, I get two pictures in my head. One is a fern gully, um, which everyone of a certain generation will probably have fond memories of with the big evil beasts coming through and mowing down trees. But the other part is sort of, you hear it and you say, that can't be right. Um, if, if we know that this is so ecologically sensitive, we know that it's so important to the, the biodiversity and the, the biohealth of not just small ecosystems, but really, I mean, you know, you're talking a large part of Nova Scotia is influenced by this. We're talking a large part of New Brunswick and as a result, very much the rest of the country. Like this, this can't be real. Why is it happening? And I believe, and you, you will probably, uh, be able to explain this quite well, that the answer is very simply greed. It, it is greed. Um, you know, there's, there's ignorance, which is nobody's guilty for being ignorant. Ignorance is just a lack of knowledge. And then there's stupidity, whereas, which is where you have the knowledge and you ignore the knowledge. And it's greed and a kind of willful stupidity that's behind this. Um, and I used to, I mean, like up until pretty recently, there was a part of me that wanted to believe that many of the people involved in this were really guilty only of ignorance and they just needed education. But uh, giving, given some things that I've seen and witnessed in the last two or three years, I've had a number of persons that have worked at the federal and provincial level and privately within um, um, some of the companies that formed the pulp cartel here in Nova Scotia. They've leaked information to me, and they've leaked it independently. I, I never give out resources. In fact, um, and, and so they, they don't have any way to know that one person or another is, has, has leaked info to me. At the time, I wasn't even public that, that I was involved in advocacy. I was just documenting things. And there is, at very high levels, there is a very willful kind of greed and an intention um, and intent to really create of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick massive pulp plantations, regardless of the impacts that it has on the environment. I, I wish I could say otherwise, but greed is quite simply at the heart of it. And that's what we see with a lot of these, these systems. And, you know, the one that I have any real experience with when it comes to forestry is looking in um, Alberta and British Columbia, where they have been doing uh, clear cutting and doing seismic line cutting uh, into regions with uh, critically endangered caribou. And then going and saying we have to kill the wolves. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that. Our listeners uh, have heard me talk about it several times now. And uh, it's, it's very frustrating because they're saying, well, we need to kill the wolves to protect the caribou. But the reason the caribou need to be protected is because they're going in and cutting these lines. And exactly. it's, I mean, it's, it's very, very clear why it's happening and what's happening. And they're sort of working around an actual solution by saying, well, we have to do this. And this is a, you know, this is an argument I will get in, um, frequently. And the problem, the reason I get in this argument is because I don't know the answer and it's looking at the reality that we need 
jobs. We need an economy. We need to do all of this. And when we look, uh, you know, when I spent some time in Yarmouth and Annapolis, um, uh, the Annapolis Valley, sorry, uh, in uh, Nova Scotia, there is a, a, and this was years ago, but there was a notable, um, you know, job problem, um, employment issue. And you look in some of these remote regions throughout Canada, and even here in Hamilton, in the middle of a, a, a well, relatively healthy city, there are job problems. And it, I don't know what the answer is because we need jobs. We have these resources, but we also have a responsibility to the environment. So is this a case where there is a way we can do this right? Or is this a case where there isn't a right way to do it? You know, it's, it's actually, it's a very, very pertinent question, even a brilliant question, because it seems to be, it's a question that actually has some very obvious answers that, that presently the government won't look at. And, you know, persons such as myself that have been involved in the sciences and in advocacy and my peers that are actually biologists, my, my role in the sciences has to do with clinical work, but, but peers that are actually biologists and such, we've seen this, um, there's an ignoring and even a burial of the facts and that's largely because we have persons running upper levels of things like our Ministry of Environment and, and Natural Resources that are fo- former employees of uh, the pulp industry. Now, you can go to LinkedIn and actually verify it. It's very easy to verify it. And they're seeing things. People have the impression that these persons are ecologists, but they're not. They see things through the eyes of a, of a, of a forester, not just any forester, but a forester who's associated with the, with the, the pulp cartels. Here's a forest. There's hardwoods in the way. Let's get them out the way and 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 replant uh, um, conifers so we can make pulp. But there is a way to help the pulp industry. And the fact um, I was reading a study just uh, I mean a way to help the economy. And I was reading a study just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I believe it was by the uh, the the forest uh, was it the forest coalition. I'm part of so many groups. I forget who publishes what times, but. Um, they were in this study that they had cited. It was found that the tourist industry of Nova Scotia is worth 850 million a year, whereas the pulp industry brings into Nova Scotia, I don't know, 40, 50 million a year, something like that. And yet we're destroying what the tourist industry wants. We're destroying this pristine wilderness landscape and such. But beyond that, beyond just creating jobs for persons in and related to. The tourist industry, I've been um, a proponent for years of forest farming. I own a couple hundred acres of woods. And, um, you know, I, I, I talk, I, I give, I give uh, nature interpretation tours. Um, I teach courses on foraging and wildlife interpretation and such. And I've been a, 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 um, an advocate of what we can do economically. The forest has to turn a profit, or at least regions of it. There are much, much better ways we can use the forest to benefit the economy that are also beneficial um, to, to, to forests. One, the carbon tax system, simply the forests capture carbon. And there's a huge misunderstanding that uh, you need to cut down the trees and the new trees grow and they capture carbon. That's not how it works. Mature trees are much more efficient and effective at capturing carbon and moving it into the ground. If you cut those trees, you take away that carbon capture system 
And then if you go and you burn those trees, worse still, you've released much of that carbon back into the atmosphere. But there is a growing industry in the United States and in Europe, and it needs to come to Canada where owners of forests can sell their forest for carbon capture. So the, the type of forest, the, the land they have, the type of forest, the maturity of the trees, it's assessed, it's determined how many carbon credits it's worth, and they can sell that. Now, a person, you know, the, the average for cutting forests is somewhere between 50 and, and 80 years, depending on what kind of trees they're cutting. That's if you're going to clear cut and sell to the pulp industry and the timber industry. Mm-hmm. If you do it that way, you're going to, you're going to score something. It's an average. It's, it's appalling a little, somewhere between 2 and $10 per acre per year from doing that. Whereas if you're just selling carbon credits, you've already beaten the per acre per year income, even if your land is very is valued very low on carbon capture. But there's so much more you can do. Um, an acre of Acadian forest in Nova Scotia is a virtual garden of various types of mushrooms. I do a lot of courses on on, on recognition of edible and medicinal mushrooms, ganodermas, and the, the various types of ganodermas, and perotis, um, chaga, turkey tail. I could just go on and on and on. But these mushrooms are worth a great deal of money, and the person can go through the forest and harvest many of these mushrooms, leave a small percentage to spread poor. Some of those mushrooms will return year after year from, from native mycelium inside the wood or underground anyway. They can go through, they can harvest, and again, they can get returns far more of far more per acre per year than they would from selling their land as pulp. But, you know, if you sell the timber on your land for pulp or timber or whatever, you get a one-time return, and then it's 55 to 80 years before somebody else gets another return. And it might seem like a lot of money because, you know, if you have 200 acres of woods and you're getting 10 or 20 bucks, um, per acre per year, it's going to seem to you like you've just made two or three thousand per acre. But when you average that out over years, it, it's really virtually nothing. Forest farming is a tremendous resource. We could restore nature conservation for uh, persons who want to do ecological touring, wildlife uh, watching, that type of thing. And we could do responsible forestry where we harvest mature trees. If you look at the years, many of the European models, they, they, they don't harvest trees and grind them up and sell them as fast as they can. Like Switzerland, they cut, they cut a region of forest where the trees are deemed at the peak of their maturity. And those forests that have prime grain, they go on to become wood for musical instruments. That stuff can be as much as $100 per cubic foot. Wow. Um, trees that are lesser grain, they become furniture. Trees that are lesser grain still, they get marked, earmarked for studs and stuff. And they don't just go and sell that wood bulk out to wherever in the world. Then they turn that wood into product. They create layers and layers and layers of industry in return. But our model here in Canada is basically cut and sell. We, we're still very much, honestly, we're in a, a very colonial mindset. We have such a big country and such a low population. And I think that this, this, this modality of cut and sell as fast as possible, we still as Canadians, unfortunately, think of ourselves as, okay, well, there's all the real countries elsewhere. We need to cut our forest and just sell it because we need to make money. And we, we give our raw resources away. We use them up too fast. We give them away. And we don't create the layers of economy that we certainly could through more mature and responsible and far-thinking far usage. Yeah, I'm, it's a very interesting concept, and it's it's remarkably similar to how we're talking about grizzly bears in British Columbia, um, saying you can get someone to come up, and they may spend $5,000 to go shoot that grizzly bear, and the economy gets a boost of $10,000 as a result. But if you allow for ecotourism to take that over, that one grizzly bear brings in $5,000 a week for... Exactly. 
you know, a, a three month season. Uh, it's you're you're looking at an industry that is currently valued at mil- hundreds of millions of dollars, um, potentially billions. And at the same time, we still have this mentality of, well, we have to do this. Uh, we are placed in Canada by a very, very short-term mentality um, in the way that we approach economy in most industry sectors. Unfortunately, and a terrible disadvantage that we have, is companies in the forestry are not plagued by a short-term mentality. They are plagued by, I mean, they have a very long-term vision, and they know if they can get people to overlook those realities, they can harvest them. The land's not good for anything, so they can get them to agree to replant pulp trees. And you know what? It's going to be the, the problem of people two generations down the road. So, But they're looking at that. You know, every time they cut a wood, they're thinking, we're going to be back here in 50 to 80 years to cut it again. All the... All the things, like the grizzly bear in your example. I mean, heck, even if that grizzly bear only brought in, say, $2,000 of business in a whole year, and that sounds terrible, because what's that, $150, $70 a month, something like that? You know what? In the five years it's going to take the next grizzly bear to come in, you still doubled yep. what that money would make to, to sell it, I mean, to, to, to hunt and kill that grizzly bear one time. I hate to speak of grizzly bears as if they're just a, a commodity, but, but that is the fiscal reality. We have a very, very outside of the timber industry and perhaps banks, we have a very, very short-term perspective. Yeah, on, and on my, my knowledge on a lot of this stuff comes very, very heavily on the wildlife side, rather obviously. Um, so, you know, the, the North American model of wildlife conservation is, is and it, it feels, it has that same feel to it as what you're talking about with forestry and with other, uh, the you know, extraction of resources, in that there is a responsibility to use it. And that is sort of the fundamental flaw, um, that it has value for being there on its own. And if we want to use it in some way, there is more than one way to use it. But it's exactly. not viewed that way. It, it's, it's, well, we can cut down the trees and sell them. And that's it. it the, like, as you've said, and I think that's a very interesting concept, uh, what they're doing in parts of uh, Northern Europe. That, that sounds fascinating to me. So even if one part of the industry takes a hit for some reason, the rest of the industry bounces out. And that's what we've seen in Alberta, I believe, with a lot of the economy that was so heavily based on oil, uh, is when oil prices take a hit, the whole economy crumbles. Exactly. It was uh, a one-note song. There was, you know, we see the model in nature that if you have to have bio, biodiversity because if there's an impact someplace, it's mitigated by all the diversity, all the options within the system. And economically, it's no different. Alberta, Alberta's um, um, oil industry, uh, such as it was, was a one-note song. And when the world met, um, when, when the world developed its own capacity to meet its oil needs, there was, there was not really a fallback plan. That was it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and when I uh, was looking into some of the fur farms in Nova Scotia, that's obviously had been a very large industry there for a while. Um, and this is, I don't know, I, I think this is maybe part, as you've said, a very colonial attitude. Uh, I saw it, I think, very personified in Nova Scotia's decision to back fur farming. But they said, people are making money on this, let's throw resources at it. Without that long-term concept of this is a very fluctuating uh, commodity. It's It's not... I mean, we're not talking wood, we're not talking fresh water, we're not talking food, we're talking about something that people may or may not want, if fashion states that it may or may not be valuable this year. And they just, they threw literally tens of millions of dollars for years at this industry to try and help it grow, and then it crashed. 
Um, and while that was happening, I was looking at, well, what are these people supposed to do? Right? They've got some land. They've got some know-how. Uh, they've got some practical experience. And you take a look at the, uh, the vineyards of Nova Scotia. That's a massively growing economy right now. Uh, we're seeing the same thing not far from where I am in Hamilton in the Niagara region. The vineyards are, are making tons of money, providing tons of local jobs. Um, and it's, it's this whole industry unto itself. And then that also draws in the tourism. So like, it's not just that we're producing this product, but people want to come and be a part of it. They want to learn about it. They want to experience it. Um, so I think it's, it's very valuable too, that you see and others see there are solutions to this problem. It's not just, well, we can't cut down trees and let's go home guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, you bring up a, an odd point here. It's, it's a bit beside the point, but you know, here in Nova Scotia, we have this decades-long, many decades-long tradition of throwing money, public money, into losing businesses, businesses that simply could not exist unless they were given public money to exist. I mean, who does that? <laughs> and, and, and then worse yet, the businesses that Nova Scotia will tend to throw itself into are businesses that either have a limited and unsustainable model, such as the pulp industry. I mean, if you cut it 4%, which is the goal here in Nova Scotia, then in 25 years, your resource is gone. But things like the fur industry or the Christmas tree industry that was big here back in the 80s and 90s, um, things like the, uh, the, uh, the call center industry. These are all businesses that if somebody else wants to build it elsewhere, they can easily replicate that. Whereas things like vineyards, these things can only exist in areas that have the right balance of, of hot and cold and the right amount of time of hot and cold. And even then due to soil eccentricities and such, you know, the wine of some of the wine growing regions of Nova Scotia is going to be wine unique to that area. If they market it right, it can become as unique and special as, as French wines from Champagne and such. But our government doesn't like to throw money into those things. It keeps picking these losing industries to throw money into, which is, to me, not being from here, it's, it's a very odd concept that the government would be throwing money into industries anyway. It, it really like the- does stand out. And that's, I, 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 get, I think also, you know, not coming from there, when I was looking at the, the fur farming industry, and it's, it's that same revelation of, why are you doing this? It doesn't make sense. And I've got to think it's because when election time rolls around, they can say, look, we supported your uncle's job. Like to me, that's, that's the only logical thing. Whereas they could say, well, we're going to take this money that we're throwing at your industry that is losing um, money hand over fist. And we're going to retrain you. We're going to provide, you know, ground resources if you want to start up this new type of business or this new investment um, and diversify. So it is a very curious, uh, uh, very curious model of, of uh, doing business out there. And I, I really believe it's, it's heavily just pol- uh, politicized. It's, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Um, my background is mostly ecology and the sciences behind things. I don't know the, the political side of things too deeply, but I mean, it has to be for, for something to be this bizarre and dysfunctional. It has to be politicians behind it. <laughs> well, my background's journalism and I can verify that. So, okay. <laughs> uh, now this, this is a very, so, I mean, it's, you've made the very clear case that this is a problem, uh, economically, ecologically, it is a problem. As you said, you know, 
if we continue at the rate we're going in 25 years, it'll be gone. It'll be done. Um, not only will that have leave irreparable damage to uh, one of the uh, incredibly biodiverse sections of, of Canada, and as I've said to you and I've said many times, Nova Scotia is one of the most beautiful parts of this country. Um, and it'll also leave a lot of people without a way of providing for themselves anymore. Um, there are some ways that we can mitigate this, as you've said, uh, talking about, you know, ecotourism, talking about uh, very, very sort of, um, almost, I, I don't know what the term would be. It's sort of somewhere between like boutique farming, maybe, in terms of looking into some of the, the unique resources available. Um, forest farming. Forest farming, okay. Um, and in regards to what people can do. I mean, here in Hamilton, um, you know, what can I do? What can the listeners do across the country and around the world to say, this isn't right and we want to see change happen? Right now, you know, honestly, the biggest thing is unity. Um, the governments need to know that people are concerned and that they're grouping and that they care. It's something that I'm seeing just starting to happen here in Nova Scotia. I was saying I was part of many groups here that do advocacy and they seem to be just starting to recognize that they really need to fall in together. They need to become a block. Otherwise, you know, it's just 100 concerned city citizens in this county and a couple thousand concerned citizens in that village and such. Um, it's just a, a bunch of small and substantial targets. They need to form a block. I, I think it would be wonderful if everybody spoke to their MLAs and, and such, but even joining these groups, giving them numbers, giving them masses, signing their petitions, that begins to say something. It begins to speak very loudly. Now, the, the challenge to this is that, the again, the forestry industry that's behind this, they're very long-term in their thinking, and they have become very, very insidious in the disinformation. Like, there's a website. If you look up the website, Forest Nova Scotia, it's the website of an, a union of industries that are involved in the pulp cartel in Nova Scotia. Um, and there is a tremendous amount. It's, it's essentially the disinformation website. Now, misinformation is accidental, wrong information. Disinformation is intentional. Um, you know, the, the claims that they're, they're doing forestry responsibly, the, the claims that they're listening to scientists. Well, I can fly a drone over any random clear-cut in Nova Scotia if it's more than a mile or so out of, out of the way of a road where people are not likely going to go. And I, I bet dollars to donuts, as my father used to say, that I'll find numerous violations in there. The degree is of, of, the, of the cutting is wrong. But, so the forest industry is misrepresenting itself. They run commercials on TV every day claiming to that they're practicing very responsibly, that they care deeply about the forest, that they're replanting the forest. You know, if you cut down an Acadian forest with 200 species of trees and 10,000 species of plants and 8,000 species of fauna, and then you replant a spruce plantation, of, say, white spruce, you haven't replanted a forest. You just made a green desert. They run with this, and people need to become aware of that. So we have a constant battle to keep disseminating information to help the public become aware of this complex problem because it's not simple. But as, if people would even become aware and care enough to join the group so that their names, their numbers can be added to blocks of advocacy, that's a thing governments listen to. And in the end, I won't mince words, in my opinion. Most politicians are not that bright. Um, and and they're mostly interested in getting reelected. And I guess that's a natural part of being a politician. You have to be elected. But when you have numbers mounting, politicians listen. And they're not scientists. They're not really qualified. I mean, our, our last Minister of Environment, 
um, had a high school diploma. She was nowhere near a scientist. We've got a different one now. I think he has a, an associate of arts in business or a BA in business. Again, not a scientist. So not, the politicians simply are not qualified to be making or interpreting the science on these, on these issues. What they will listen to are people when they form into blocks and make their will known. We need to, as a populace, join the organizations that are involved in advocacy and make the politicians listen to them. Currently, the big blocks are the, are the pulp cartel, and, um, you know, they, it, it, and there's a lot of money behind those pulp cartels, and that's who they're listening to. We need to make our voice louder we need, so that we, can, we can't outlast them, per se, because they're, they're aiming for goals that are 50 and 80 years down the road, but we can be louder than them if we bring our voices together. You can learn more by visiting Stop Spraying and Clear Cutting Nova Scotia or checking out healthyforestcoalition.ca. That's the show for this week. Uh, before we go, I want to let you know that we will be doing more Facebook Live events, and that's going to include Q&A with guests, Q&A with myself, and discussion about current affairs. You can stay informed by following us on facebook.com slash Defender Radio or connecting through Twitter at Defender Radio or Instagram at Howie Michael. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.